Deciding about terminating a pregnancy is such a complicated, emotional, difficult process. But there are times, say, if a woman has a pregnancy and we do an ultrasound and clearly that baby is not going to survive. If she carries it to term, it's going to be born and die. We would terminate that pregnancy. There's so many different situations that we had to deal with. Hey, this is Chad Namiro. And I'm Kelly Namiro. Welcome to the Balancing Chaos Podcast. A lifestyle podcast where we will interview guests about wellness, business, and just about everything in between. Our goal is to help you develop a lifestyle that promotes health, wholeness, and success. Through our conversations, we hope to inspire you to live a beautiful, full, and joyful life as you navigate balancing the chaos. We hope you enjoy. All right, everyone. We have a exciting guest on the show today. It is none other than my mother. <laughs> so I'm going to have to call her Debbie throughout the episode, which might be strange, but I'll probably refer to her as mom and Debbie. Uh, she is an MD. She's a gyneco- gynecologist and a gynecologic surgeon who practices out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, obstetrics was her first love, and she delivered over 5,000 babies in 17 years. Due to a burgeoning gynecologic surgery practice, she stopped delivering babies and moved into specializing advanced laparoscopic surgery. She has performed over 10,000 laparoscopic hysterectomies and presented at international conferences on laparoscopic surgery. Always an animal lover and a vegan, she writes and lectures on vegetarianism and health lifestyle. She also has her own nonprofit, which she funds a 30-acre ranch and sanctuary in Prescott, Arizona. The ranch is home to horses, goats, cows, chickens, geese, and donkeys. The property also functions as a dog and cat sanctuary for older animals who have no chance of adoption. She has four kids, myself being one of them, of course. And for those of you who aren't aware, she is grandma to Weston Enzo. Uh, With that being said, welcome to the show, Mom. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for being with us. We're super excited to talk to you today. I cannot wait to hear more. I mean, I know Chad knows a lot about how you got into gynecology and I have heard Jay's whole story before about, you know, how he got interested in fertility, but for you, how did you get into like that field? What made you interested in it when you were kind of going through medical school and your residency and all that? Can you tell us more about that? Well, initially, I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And and that was my... That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yes. Uh, that was my intention, even into the first or second year of college. Uh, but I did work in a veterinary hospital. And back then... You know, this was many, many years ago, people didn't regard their pets the same way they do today. So in other words, uh, I remember somebody brought in a dog who had a broken leg because it had been hit by a car and they just wanted to euthanize. They didn't uh, even consider having the leg fixed. Um, and it's just, it was a very callous approach to to their pets. So that was discouraging. And then my aunt, uh, who is since deceased, but my aunt had a conversation with me. I remember on the porch of our house and she said, you know, I really think you'd be better off being a human physician and just helping animals in other ways. And so I switched, um, I switched to uh, pre-med. Now I had, when I was 12, I had been a volunteer, you know, kind of like a candy striper at a hospital in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And I 
enjoyed the OB ward. I enjoyed delivering babies. I, I mean, I didn't deliver the babies myself, obviously, but I enjoyed watching it and taking care of the babies and moms. So um, even from you know early in medical school, I, uh, I thought that I would probably go into OBGYN, mm. which I did. So going into OB and being a gynecologist, was that like, do you feel like that was really challenging work getting through that part in medical school? And is there any advice that you have for anyone who is part of our listenership who wants to be a doctor? Well, medical school is tough. I mean, it's, you know, it's completely uh, involving. I mean, you, you really can't do much else in your life while you're in medical school. It's not to say it's bad because, you know, I had 150 students who I became very close to, and it was, it was a real bonding experience. And we'd go out to dinner together and we'd study together and we'd play baseball together and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's not a bad experience, but it's all encompassing. Um, there's not much else that goes on in your life during that period of time. And it's a lot of memorization. It's hard. You know, you go to, I would sit in class all day long for eight hours. And then the next day there would be a test on what was presented in that class during the eight hours. So it was bang, bang, bang. It Ruling. was, oh, yeah. When you're reading about all these diseases and ailments and illnesses, did you convince yourself that you might have oh. one? Yeah, a few times. <laughs> Probably not as many as some of the other students, but that's yeah, what I, I would do. That's what I was just going to say. That's what you would do. I'd be like, I definitely have this. I feel tired. <laughs> yeah, I was convinced I had meningitis once, and right. I was convinced I had a stroke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's well, you know, you, you, read about the symptoms and then you start looking at yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So do you, for anyone who wants to become a doctor, is there anything that you would tell them? Like, if you want to do this, like it takes a lot of hours or work or effort. Like, I think that a lot of people think that like everything is easy these days. Um, so is there any advice you would have for anyone who wants to become a doctor? Well, you just have to be, you know, you have to be really, really serious about it. Yeah, and that has you have to be very, very committed to getting that MD at the end of of the four years or five years of undergraduate school and four years of, of medical school and then another, you know, three to seven years of residency. It's a huge commitment. You really have to want it. Yeah. And back but, in the day, I think it's still what eighty hours per week residency these days but i think in your day it was correct me oh. if i'm wrong closer to 100 there was no limit on it there was no limit when i was in residency at st joe's here in phoenix um we had the, the, the residency director who was a wonderful wonderful man and and somebody i respect well he's passed now but anyway i respected him highly um we had a clinic and so we had our own patients in the clinic and he said, look, you know, you have your own patients in the clinic and they're pregnant. And so it doesn't matter if you've been on call the night before, you're sticking around for that that mm -hmm. delivery if she goes wow. into labor. So there are times when I would be in the hospital for three days without making it home. Um, Is that when, when you had good? kids? Is yeah. that when you had kids? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> but I had nannies. I mean, not with Chad, you know, by the time yeah. I had Chad, I was in practice. 
Yeah. So for yeah. those of you who don't know, Debbie has, Chad has three brothers and sisters, so four kids. And she did all of that while also managing being an OBGYN and starting her own practice. Um, Sounds tiring. <laughs> yeah. Chad and I are exhausted with two kids and we work from home. So I can't even imagine what that was like. Um, yeah, a little crazy, but you know, what's life about? It's okay. Can you tell us about how you started your own practice? Like what led to that decision and um, kind of how you got out of, you know, residency and into that? Well, back then, really, most doctors who wanted to have a practice started their own practice. These days, right. things are very, very different. You know, you it's very difficult to afford to start your own practice and yeah. buy all the equipment that you need and hire all the people you need unless you have a huge loan and banks are not so amenable to um to providing those loans. Back then, the banks were begging me to you know, take their loan, take their money. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much what everybody did. And, and there weren't a lot of female gynecologists or OBGYNs back then. So as soon as I hung out my shingle, uh, I was pretty busy. I was yeah. very busy within six months or so. Yeah. I, I think that a lot, like you said, like a lot of women feel a lot more comfortable with a female gynecologist. So I can imagine that you were pretty busy because of that. Like, I know for me, from the time that I had to start going, which is when I was like, what, like 16, all the way until I got pregnant with West, my gynecologist was a woman because I was not comfortable going to a man. And then we saw an OB when I was getting ready to have West, who was um, a male because he was highly, highly regarded and highly recommended. But before that, I was not comfortable enough seeing uh, a male. So I think that that makes a ton of sense that, that you would have so many patients. How many patients do you have now? It's hard to say. I, I've never, I haven't looked at the numbers, but it's in the many, many multiple thousands, probably 20, yeah. 25, 30,000. If you add them all up over the years. Yeah. I see. I saw 35 patients today. Wow. So that's, and that's pretty typical. I've seen up to 50 patients in a day. There's a huge uh, demand right now because many OBGYNs in this area, at least retired over COVID. Oh, I think one in five, I think I saw statistics that said one in five physicians in the United States has retired over the last two or three years. That's so we're getting a lot of patients who were seeing other doctors, but they don't have anybody to go to right now. Mm. What's the most common thing that you're doing in your office? Like procedure wise, is it pap smears? Is it mammograms? Is it, or is it like surgeries? Is it, I know you do like a lot of the, you know, more like med spa beauty type of things. And we're going to get into that. Cause I want to talk about how you've transitioned some of your business there, but like when it comes to gynecology, what's the most common thing you're seeing patients for? Well, at this point I see mostly, I actually stopped operating after, you know, many, many years of teaching laparoscopic surgery nationally and, you know, having gynecologists fly in and watch us operate. So I stopped operating in May, okay. uh, right before I turned 70 uh, which is pretty much the recommendation, you know, I mean, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want them to call you into the office and say, Hey, 
you know, you're losing. <laughs> maybe you want to, maybe you want to consider quitting. You want to vary with it. Make your own decision before that possibly happens. Not that I had any problems. I didn't have any any complications at all. But um, so at this point, I see mostly menopausal women. So okay. what is the most common problem I see? Um, menopausal symptoms, hot yeah. flashes, night sweats, insomnia, depression, memory loss, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse. Um, I mean, today I saw, I was telling Chad earlier, I saw this cute little 74-year-old who's actually a pretty old 74-year-old. And she came in and she said, you know, my husband is a little bit younger and he still wants to have sex and it's just not working because without estrogen, without estrogen, which, you know, at 50 or so women's estrogen supply ends because we stop making estrogen and testosterone and progesterone and all those hormones. Uh, So without estrogen, a 74 year old woman woman is not going to be able to have comfortable intercourse because estrogen increases the elasticity and the moisture in the vagina. And without elasticity, you can use all the lubricant in the world, but it's not stretchy. So it hurts. I think that that's a really interesting topic because a lot of the listeners here, I know, because a lot of my clients are 50 plus people who have gone through menopause. And I feel like they feel like a forgotten group. Like they feel like their needs don't matter. And a lot of times if they have gone to see a male doctor in the past, because I've been told that because of their, their clients who I've seen, they're like, well, I'm just told, you know, you're getting older and this is what you have to deal with. Um, and as you said, estrogen is really like the water loving hormone. And so it, it provides that lubrication. It is your recommendation to people like the 74 year old who you saw today to go on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? Like what's the, what's the solution to that problem in your eyes? Well, it depends on what I always ask them what their goal is. And if right. they want to have a sex drive and arousal and orgasmic capacity and all of that, then we have to consider systemic Hormones and all we, we don't use anything but bioidentical hormones. Okay. So if they want all of that, you know, the the little zing and the sex yeah. drive, um, then we have to use systemic hormones. She didn't really care about that. Mm-hmm. So we can treat um, this vaginal atrophy and lack of elasticity with uh, vaginal estrogen. Mm-hmm. And also we have a technique, we have a technology called Mona Lisa Touch Vaginal Laser, which is tiny little laser beams that penetrate the vaginal tissue and kind of tricks the body into bringing in more elastin and collagen in a reparative process. So if we combine the vaginal estrogen along with the Mona Lisa Touch, which has been around for quite a few years and mm-hmm. tried and true, then we can at least get her back to the point where she's comfortable with intercourse with her partner. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, many times, I mean, who looks forward to something that hurts? Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> so is there a light? Is a po- for both parties, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not letting your son get a word in edgewise right now, but I'm like very fascinated by this topic. So um, if there is someone who wants like, so she's comfortable, right? But if there is someone who wants the arousal, is like, is that possible at 74 years old? Yes. It is. Okay. And so what do you do for that? 
Well, it's there are just a whole variety of hormone replacement uh, options. The pellets are probably the most popular. If you really want to get a sex drive back, pellets are estrogen and testosterone time release pellets that we put under the skin, mm-hmm. and they release. You know, it's a time release technology, so they release over a period of three, four, five months, and and really put a woman back into, say, a 40-year-old hormonal balance. So she's going to, as long as she has a good relationship. Now, you know, that's a component of it that I have no control over. Right. Uh, But if they have a good relationship and they did have a good sexual relationship before, I can usually bring it back with the estrogen and testosterone pellets. I think that that is fascinating. Um, And I think that a question I get asked a lot, and I want to ask you because you're the expert here is, are there any downsides to bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? Like when we saw hormone replacement therapy in the past, it was a lot of like potentials of cancer and things like that because of the excess estrogens that could, you know, happen. But for you, like if you're seeing, if you're using bioidentical hormones and you're balancing them in the right way, is there any downside to it? No, to be honest with you, the the notion that estrogen causes, say, for instance, breast cancer is a myth. It's a pervasive myth, but it is a myth because if one goes through every single study looking at you know, women who are on estrogen or off estrogen, who has a higher risk of breast cancer, you're not going to see a difference. And actually, there are some studies that indicate that estrogen decreases the risk of breast cancer. Now, if you have breast cancer and it is estrogen receptor positive, then obviously it's not safe to take estrogen. Although we're able to give these women vaginal estrogen because vaginal estrogen basically stays in the vagina. Locally. So so it is a myth. And, and unfortunately, it's caused a lot of damage and, and suffering among uh, women and couples because you know, when, when the Women's Health Initiative study came out in, oh, I think it was 2001, it was a long time ago, indicating that possibly estrogen did increase the risk of breast cancer, many, many women went off their hormones, which yeah. ended their sex life and, uh, and caused, you know, hot flushes and night sweats and insomnia. And if you, I mean, if you, every single brain cell has an estrogen receptor. So without estrogen around, women are going to have memory issues. If you, if you give women an IQ test when they're not on estrogen, and then you give another IQ test after adding estrogen for six months or so, they're going to do a lot better. There's no doubt about it. The brain functions better with estrogen. So, um, uh, you know, so I'm pretty free at prescribing uh, estrogen and and, partic- and testosterone as well, because testosterone is something is a hormone that the ovaries make, and um, and it is important to sex drive. It's important to mood. I mean, if you give birds testosterone, they sing more. The confidence thing, right? You can have more confidence when your testosterone is is right. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. and and of course, you know, better muscle building availability uh, and um, yeah. better, you know, it, it, and obviously a much better sex drive. Yeah. Is there any way to from? So we had uh, Gary on the show, Rekka, who's a human biologist, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about using supplementation to promote the natural production of testosterone. 
And he was referring, I think, mostly to males, but like it, using DHEA almost like as a precursor to, yeah. Instead of, so I guess mm-hmm. the question is are there instances where you're choosing that route as opposed to testosterone therapy? Or is it mostly the, uh, the latter? I usually just go for the testosterone therapy, but I see a lot of naturopaths and uh, see a lot of naturopaths using the DHEA. It is converted to testosterone to some de- degree, but usually yeah. not enough to accomplish what, what the patients want. are coming to see me for. Uh, you know, it's not it's not yeah. going to rev up the sex drive, and that's you know that's a lot of what I deal with. So, in answer to your question about what I see most, what I see most is women who are who are suffering with the ravages of menopause i mean you know if you look at if you look at the history of human beings in 1900 the average age of death was 50 average human age of death was 50 in the united states at least um, and probably lower in other countries so we were meant you know our dna was kind of uh, scheduled to die around the time of menopause yeah um so you know, so we're living far beyond really the way the, the age we're supposed to be living. Yeah. And so we have to compensate for that. I mean, we compensate, you know, thyroid, the thyroid gland often gives out around that time or even earlier than that. So we compensate with thyroid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if the ovaries give out, you know, in order to, to feel, a sex drive and feel the energy level that women want to experience and sleeping well and all that and clear thinking that we have to, to supplement. So one last thing on this topic, uh, before we move on in, cause I want to ask you some questions about birth control. I'm sure your son has some questions as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is there any difference between why you would choose, or can you explain why you would choose bioidentical hormone therapy rather than synthetic hormones? Well, I mean, we don't, there aren't even a lot of synthetic hormones out there. I mean, the Premarin is pregnant mare's urine for heaven's sake. Yeah. I, mean, who I got wants put that? on that. I got put on that when I was like, I don't know. What? Like in my early twenties when I had amenorrhea. Yeah. I got put on. Oh, shit. Yeah. Jeez. It's insane. I mean, not only is it from pregnant mare's urine, but it's Gross. cool because they tie these poor pregnant horses up and, you know, to, to, uh, they tie them up with a one foot rope, but they can't lay down. They can't turn around. They can't roll. You know, they can't do anything that horses like to do. So yeah. it's extremely cool for six months out of the 11 month pregnancy. That's crazy. Now I wouldn't know. I'm unwilling to use Premarin, but, you know, honestly, um, there aren't a lot of non-bioidentical estrogen okay. uh, supplements available. Patches are bioidentical, pills are bioidentical, creams are bioidentical. All of that's bioidentical. There what about, are not- about progest. Do you put them on progesterone when you're putting them on estrogen too to balance it? Yes, oftentimes yes. Particularly if they have a uterus, because if yeah, you overstimulate the uterine lining with estrogen, then you're going to get hyperplasia and abnormal bleeding and, and potentially even uterine cancer. So we have to use progesterone to balance it. I mean, some women feel great on progesterone and frankly, some women hate it. So it's, uh, you know, because it does tend to make you tired and hungry, but, but we have to use it if they have uh, a uterus and and we use bioidentical progesterone. We do not use synthetic progesterone. Mm -mm. 
Hey fam, if you are listening here, then you may be someone who deals with chronic overwhelm, bloating, anxiety, and weight you can't lose, maybe hair loss or skin conditions. If one of those things rings true for you, the Wellness by Kelly Health and Hormones course is available to help you get to the root cause and solve the issue in a way that's sustainable and gives you your lifestyle with lasting results. No more diets or quick fixes, but real health and vitality for the long run. My course runs through everything from what labs to test for to what protocols to implement given what's off in your blood work. We cover a variety of hormonal imbalances and how to heal them, plus the mindset work that you'll have to do to change your habits. If you're ready for an environment where you can learn the tools and truly heal to feel your best, most aligned, light, confident version of you, then this course is for you. If you're feeling called to join the WBK Health and Hormones course, head to the link in the show notes to learn more where you'll get my membership included with your purchase. So I think we'll get to a few other topics around uh, female health uh, in a minute, but there was a massive law last week in Arizona around abortion. There's obviously a lot going on around abortion lately. Uh, which effectively brought back an over 100-year-old, some would say, draconian set of laws. Uh, tell, tell us about that more specifically, uh, how the medical field is responding and, and how you're kind of navigating uh, this in pretty uncharted territories, to be honest. Well, remember that I don't do obstetrics anymore. So I'm my... Uh, yeah, but you're, you know, associated with it. You're around it. So. Yeah. I mean, the impact on me is minimal, but, uh, you know, deciding about terminating a pregnancy is such a complicated, emotional, difficult process. And I can tell you that um, I didn't, I never actually in my practice did elective abortions. I didn't Mm -hmm. do elective abortions. There weren't, you know, there were some doctors in town who did that kind of thing. So if someone wanted to abort a pregnancy that, was unexpected and unwanted, we would refer them. But, but there are times, say, if a woman has a pregnancy and, uh, and we do an ultrasound and clearly that baby is not gonna survive. Mm-hmm. Say it, it's an anencephalic, in other words, most of the brain is missing or it has a genetic abnormality that was discovered on amniocentesis and that baby's not going to survive. In other words, if she carries it to term, it's going to be born and die. We would terminate that pregnancy. So there are so many different, you know, there's so many different situations that we had to deal with or, you know, for pregnancies in the fallopian tube, that's called an ectopic pregnancy. And sometimes those pregnancies have a heartbeat, but if that ruptures, the woman could die because uh, she could bleed out. Um, sometimes women come into the office with a pregnancy, but, but their body's trying to miscarriage and they're bleeding, they're hemorrhaging, they're bleeding heavily. So all those are fine points that these legislators have no grasp of, no idea about. So that's what is so disturbing about this law that just was uh, enacted in Arizona that says, uh, basically, there will be no abortions at all, except and no exclusions, right? For rape, for incest. Not for rape and not for incest. To save the life of a mother. Well, who's to say? Who's to say what, uh, how 
uh, at risk the mother is if she's hemorrhaging or if she has an ectopic pregnancy. So it leaves us completely blind as far as what to do. And if you're a physician and you and you cause a miscarriage, you have a jail sentence of two to five years. So there's just no real clarity on the legality of this all. So it sounds like people are just scared and I'm obviously angry, I'm sure, but also confused. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. The American College of OBGYN is outraged at this because, again, you know, we go to school for a long time and we have and we uh, are trained in residency for a very long time. And these decisions are difficult, but they require these kinds of decisions require lots of training and lots of experience, not some dude who's sitting in 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 you know a courthouse somewhere deciding whether a pregnancy should be terminated and it's absolutely cruel to ask women to carry a baby to term and watch it die if you know that it's incompatible with life that is that is the ultimate in cruelty and i cannot imagine having to make that decision i had to abort some babies who were you know older not under 12 weeks, over 12 weeks. It's a grisly experience, mm-hmm. but I would rather have put myself through a grisly experience than put this woman through an entire pregnancy and delivering a baby who then died. That's crazy. Horrible. It's horrible to think that there are going to be so many women out there without an option. And I know like our well, sadly, I think it's going to affect mostly the lower class. Yeah. Because what's the recommendation right now that you're hearing? Yeah, I think that that was my question. It's like we, I know, you know, three of my clients are in Arizona. I know that some of our listenership absolutely lives in Arizona. So what's the recommendation to women who live in your state for what to do if they have an unwanted pregnancy? They have to go to another state. That Many of them are going to Mexico. I mean, how ridiculous oh is that? Mexico, it's a Catholic country, but that you can get an abortion over the border in Mexico, or they wow. can go to California, they can go to Colorado, they can go to New Mexico. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that is the only option at this point, but but sometimes there's no time for that yeah. option. There's yeah. no time. If somebody walks into my office tomorrow with an ectopic pregnancy in the tube, we cannot put her on a on a plane or in a car because it's a it's a life-threatening situation yeah Yeah. she ruptures that ectopic um she can bleed out and die literally within an hour so so for women who have an early pregnancy and they didn't want it i think there are particularly in california there are quite a few options and there are agencies that will actually help them pay to get there and Mm -hmm. have um an abortion but um, you know, that's really the only option at this point, which is very, very sad. And, um, again, I'm not directly confronted with it, but I know that the, some of the physicians I work with are just horrified. Yeah. It's horrible. Um, while we're, while we're still on this topic of kind of women's health, before we move into talking more about your career and your philanthropy, I know that with a lot of my clients and even with myself for a long time, I had this major misconception that if I was being put on birth control, then I was getting a period. 
And that is not the case. You're not getting a real period unless you are actually ovulating. So I'm wondering, why do you think as a physician, there is so much misinformation around birth control and that it's going to quote unquote, fix our period problems, because it's really not, it's just putting a bandaid on it. That's true. Uh, I mean, I, you know, women are highly motivated to prevent pregnancies. So yeah, that's sure. The major, that's the major reason women are put on birth control. Now, now most birth control pills, um, and we're talking about pills, and there are other, there are rings sure. and patches and, and other options, are synthetic. Right. It's not my favorite, but frankly, you know, if a woman doesn't want to get pregnant, that is one of the easiest options. But right. no, you're right. It's not a real period. It's just a bleed off. That's all. It's just a bleed off. So you're stimulating the uterine lining with estrogen. There's a buildup of the uterine lining. Then you come in with progesterone, you withdraw the progesterone and there's a bleed off. So no, it's not a real period, but it can, birth control pills can reduce the amount of bleeding that women do if they're having really heavy bleeding. I mean, I would never use birth control pills on say a postmenopausal woman who was bleeding. We have lots of other options. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but that is really the easiest way to prevent pregnancies. Sure, sure. And with pre pregnancy prevention, if that's a choice that a woman makes, and that that's their choice, right? If that's the route that they want to go. But mm -hmm. if, when it comes to something like, let's say PCOS, I've had a number of people come to me and tell me their doctor says, Oh, you have PCOS, go on the birth control, you're going to get a you're going to get a period. What are your thoughts on that? PCOS is complicated. It's it's yeah. really complicated. I mean, generally speaking, if we can, these women tend to be overweight, and if we can encourage them to lose weight and clean up their diet and exercise, oftentimes that's going to correct PCOS. And I've, I'm so glad that you said that because you're yeah. honestly the first physician, Debbie, that I've heard say that. Most doctors will say go on birth control, but it's an insulin resistance problem. Yes. And lots of the time, I would say the majority of the time when you correct that, you correct the PCOS. Yeah, it's metabolic syndrome. Yeah. yeah. Um, but again, we're dealing with a population of overweight people and, yeah. and it's very difficult. I mean, you're in a unique situation where, where women are coming to you and obviously in coming to you, they're interested in cleaning up their health and losing weight. Yeah. That is not the case in my practice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. you know, I would say at least 50% of the patients I see on a daily basis are oh, overweight right. to some degree or another, and their diets are terrible and right. their habits are terrible and they're not exercising. And so it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult problem from my point of view, because I'm seeing a general population. And you don't have a ton of time with them. So it's not like you can sit there and, you know, go over all of these things like, okay, here's what you need to eat. And here's how often you have to exercise. It's like, that's something that they have to look into on their own and be interested in actually healing their health. But I'm really glad that we got to connect those dots in this podcast, because I think that for so many people, the idea that menstrual health could be connected to, you know, over being overweight or being obese. And I'm not saying that in a way that is, you know, pointing a finger or being, you know, accusatory, but it really is, there is a, a, a direct correlation with those two things in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. what you're putting in your mouth and how, how your body is responding with 
your with your period. So yeah, um, right, and and thank you for pointing out that I don't have a lot of time with them. I mean, you know, seeing 35, 40, 45 patients a day, I've got to take care of the immediate problem, yeah, and uh, and move on, or right. else uh, you know people don't like waiting for hours, or <laughs> they don't like it, so we get complaints. Yeah. So will you tell us just before we get off this topic, if you are a cycling woman and you're not on the birth control pill, you're not on an IUD, um, a hormonal IUD, you're not on the patch, how long, how far apart normally should your menstrual cycles be? What is considered normal? Uh, normal would have to fall in between 21 days apart and 32 days. I think that's what that's what the American College of OBGYN says. So between 21 and 31 and 32 days apart. And a normal bleed should be about five days. Um, but, um, you know, it, when you look at overweight women, peripheral fat converts other hormones like adrenal hormones into estrogen. So these overweight women are bathing their uteri in estrogen. So they'll tend to have heavier periods just because they have more estrogen around. I mean, the same thing goes for menopausal women. Menopausal overweight women don't have as many menopausal symptoms as say a non-overweight woman because she's still got estrogen around from her peripheral fat. Interesting. So it's, it's interesting. So I have plenty of overweight women who are just, you know, not phased right. about menopause yeah. at all. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. I thank you for right. sharing all of that. That's really great information for our listeners. So bear with the mail here, but <laughs> I have a question for you. Do, do you think that years, if not decades of younger women being on birth control in any form in any way permanently affects their fertility systems? And, and the basis of my question is infertility is perceivably on the rise. And there's, I think, a lot of factors, stress, diet, uh, mm -hmm. chemicals in our in our daily lives, etc. But to me, not knowing, you know, the biology of all this, I look at it as, you know, a lot of women spend 10 or so years, whatever it may be, telling their fertility systems to not be productive to be turned off, essentially, and then in many cases, they get married, they get off the pill, and they want to be pregnant you know, very shortly after and, and some women really struggle. So do you think there's a permanent effect there? And, and are you aware of any studies that, uh, that uh, have researched this? It's an interesting question. I haven't seen a study that looks at that directly. Um, yeah, I haven't seen a study that looks at that. Uh, I mean, I have seen, you know, that's not the major focus of my practice anymore. So frankly, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that right. kind of literature, but there have been studies in the past that, that show that actually being on birth control pills um, suppress ovarian cysts. And so they reduce the number of surgical procedures women have. And so in some ways it can, it can enhance fertility, but yeah. I, I haven't seen any solid evidence about that. I mean, I think, Infertility, the the rise in infertility, and there there definitely is a rise in infertility, has to do with many women waiting longer to get pregnant, and sure. um, yep. eggs get old, and then the longer you wait, the more chance you have of developing ovarian cysts that need to be operated on, or endometriosis. You know, endometriosis is a huge 
uh, component of infertility. And the longer you wait to get pregnant, the more endometriosis you uh, give your body a chance to develop. Mm. So it's a tough one. But the, the honest answer is I haven't seen an actual study um, that addresses that question. It's an interesting okay. question. Yeah, I think that your dad kind of said the same thing. It's like it's a really an age thing. And then from there, it's like, you know, there's so many factors, multi-layered factors. But it is an interesting question as to why more women these days are dealing with it than ever before. I've heard it both ways. Yeah. I have a friend who was on birth control, I think, for 10 years. And she got pregnant a few months later. Yeah. So You never know. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So tell us. A little bit. Okay. So I want to talk about like finding, cause you, you did do OB for a really long time. Like we said, you delivered 5,000 public plus babies. Reduction um, off the history books. <laughs> I, so I wanted, I'm going to tell a story here that I, um, and I'm not going to name the doctor because I would never do that. But, um, when Chad and I got pregnant with West, we went to see a doctor here in town who, um, like I said, will remain nameless, but when we first went to see him, his, you know, I was like, you know, I have a birth plan and like, this is my first baby. I was so excited. Like, this is what I want. Um, I want a vaginal delivery. Like if I can, if I can keep the baby safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And basically his response to me was like, no, we're really, we're going to do this my way. You're going to get induced. Like the, like you're, we're, we might end up doing a C-section, like, et cetera, et cetera. And I, that for me, I was like, see ya, I'm going to find somebody else. And I ended up finding the doctor who we've used for both of our boys, Paul Wilkes. Um, but can you tell us, like, if someone is looking for an OB, are there certain qualities that they should be looking for when they are looking for someone? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a story from my own experience. Yeah. Um, when I was pregnant with Chad's older sister, Aria. Mm-hmm. She was born in uh, 1979. We were back in Washington, D.C. Um, I had just completed, well, I was still in medical school as I was pregnant. And I went to a similar doctor who told me, you know, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to go back to the operating room. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't have a baby anywhere but in the operating room. And you're going to have an IV and you're going to have this and that. And I ended up having a home delivery. I was not going to buy into that. Yeah. We delivered at home with a midwife. Good for you. Um, So, and some doctors are very open to the birth plans. Um, I mean, you know, you could tell right away that this guy was not going to go along with it. I think it's very important for doctors to respect the the desires of the pregnant woman. Sometimes it doesn't turn out that way. Because yeah, you're trying to keep someone safe or someone healthy, but mm-hmm. there is a respect factor at play. You're so right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you can tell the first time you meet with a doctor uh, whether they're they're open to you know to no epidural and and you know delivering in a bathtub or whatever you know whatever the woman wants to do. Mm-hmm. So, but and I think things have changed quite a bit. Uh, over the years, you know, we have birthing centers now and nice music and, and, mm-hmm. you know, tubs for some women and that sort of thing. So yeah. things have changed, but um, I mean, I was always, com- I was always very much open to whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, that's probably why I ended up delivering 5,000 babies. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. But, you know, if your doctor says something like, what you just recounted, then, 
no, then Time it's to move on. No. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and I, I saw there was a question about C-sections. Clearly, the uh, rise in the C-section rate is um, has to do with medical legal risk. Um, yeah. You know, people, uh, doctors don't get sued, generally speaking, for doing a C-section. They get sued for not doing a C-section. Yeah. And and also, I'm sure there's there's a element of convenience in it. I mean, I always had a pretty low C-section rate, but I spent the night in the hospital many, many times. Yeah. So, uh, but we were monitored. You know, we were monitored. Our C-section rates were monitored back then. And if we, if our C-section rate was over twenty percent, um, you know, we got talked to. I don't think. So, that's... is that not the case anymore? Because I feel like one in three births is a C-section. Is that is yeah, that, that a stat? Be... Is that right? I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know because you know when you get when you stop doing OB, it's like you get your journal, you get you, lost, <laughs> you go right past the OB articles. So, but that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, but you know, the medical legal situation out there, um, particularly in the in the area of OB, is really pretty treacherous. Yeah. Um, I mean, you get a bad baby for whatever reason, and there are lots of reasons that have nothing to do with what the doctor did or didn't do. And you know you're you're going to settle that case, so yeah. it's it's a tough it's a tough situation. It's unfortunate. Yeah. I read a lot about it when we were uh, getting ready for West, etc. And they 100% are on the rise. One in three sounds yeah, about so. accurate from what I remember. And it's a pretty unfortunate unfortunate mm -hmm. circumstance because I I think there is a ton of malpractice lawsuits versus in the past, and a lot of doctors love what they do and they want to stay employed and so this is de-risking it for them and yeah. that that's unfortunate that that's the paradigm it operates on but it uh -huh. is the reality uh, uh -huh. so yeah and a c-section is not the end of the world i mean honestly um putting a huge baby through a small pelvis and getting yeah. a fourth degree tear into the rectum and and violating uh, the the fascial tube that goes around the vagina and the hammock of fascia that exists in the base of the pelvis. I mean, it's relegating you to have surgery later, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you can bet on it. So, uh, you know, if the choice between doing a C-section and, and just going to the end of the earth to get a huge baby out of there, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that's a great idea because you are relegating her to surgery later. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful option that has saved many, many lives, I'm sure. So yeah, of course. It is. But it's it's obviously overused. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a couple of quick fire questions that are like will be really easy for you to answer before we talk about your career. First of all, I think there's a lot of confusion out there. How often should a woman be getting a pap smear? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a lot of confusion out there. You know, there's so many different recommendations. Here's the thing. A pap smear is a very, very easy test. Yeah. And it's not like a colonoscopy, you know, it's not like a, like a endoscopy. It's not a big deal. So personally, we still recommend yearly pap smears. Now, you know, you, you're going to see many recommendations that say, well, a woman doesn't even need a pap smear until <laughs> she's 25 years old. And after 65, who needs a pap smear? Because, you know, who cares? So uh, I personally still believe that a yearly pap smear is not a bad idea because, you know, and, and I 
I see that in my practice. I just did a pap smear on a woman the other day who hadn't had a pap smear in quite a while because her doctors were telling her she didn't need it. And sure enough, she had high grade dysplasia, which if it wasn't addressed, it would have progressed to cancer. That's mostly what high grade dysplasia does. So I still think a yearly pap smear, it allows the doctor to talk to you about how you're feeling. It allows, it allows us to look at the vulva. You know, there are squamous cell carcinomas and melanomas that occur on the vulva. And uh, oftentimes they're asymptomatic. I just had yeah. one in the other day. I, I took a look and said, are you aware of this, this area down here? No, no, no. Well, it was you know, squamous cell carcinoma. Correct. So um, it, it just, it's just a check-in and it's such an easy, you know, how long is the GYN exam? Five minutes. Yeah. It's, I, I hate to see Go it, in and get it done, ladies. Go in and get it done. Just go in and get it done. Yeah. Don't put it off. You and know, how can, old should you be when you get your first mammogram? I think 50 is probably a safe number. Um, some studies indicate that 40 is better, but there have been studies that, uh, suggest that a mammogram under 50 doesn't really save any lives. Um, so 50 is reasonable. I mean, you know, radiation is not your friend Yeah, and you don't want to have more radiation in your life than you have to have. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's always a balance. Now, these days, mammograms emit very little radiation compared to the way they were 20 years ago, but still, you know, but we do detect a lot of breast cancers uh, on mammograms. So you've transitioned away from clearly delivering babies many years ago, and then even so, uh, OBGYN as of couple of years ago, I think, and more like lasers, cool sculpt, end sculpt. Um, can you tell us what, what drove that decision and uh, your, your strategy behind the move? Well, it's for one thing, it's kind of fun. Um, yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of fun. Women appreciate it. And uh, women would often ask me my opinion about some of these things like M-Sculpt Neo or uh, you know, radio frequency microneedling, the Morpheus that we do on the face and in the vagina. Um, so there was an interest and, um, and frankly, to be frank with you, it's cash and taking insurance only, it would be very difficult to make a, to have a practice like we have where your questions answered within an hour. Um, uh, you know, there are enough, we have enough staff to really serve the patients. Well, that's amazing. You answer, like you pride yourself on answering a question within an hour. If yeah. somebody calls with a question, that is an incredible, like if you live in Arizona, you should go see my mother-in-law <laughs> because there is no medical practice in Las Vegas. Like I called about a question about breastfeeding with my pediatrician a few weeks ago, and they just never called me back. Like, I, I think that that is one of the most amazing things that I've heard you say through this entire podcast, one hour to get a question answered. That's awesome. Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, I'll get a little, you know, I'll get a little message at the top of my electronic medical records screen and I'll answer it right away. And then it gets, it gets put on the patient portal. So, so in order to have, in order to provide a quality of care that is important to me, yeah, you have to have some cash inflows. If you try to depend completely on insurance, you are not going to be able to do it. Yeah. And there are practices that try that and, and we get complaints, just like you said, you didn't even get your question answered ever. No. And I hear that all the time. 
Well, that would not happen in this practice unless, you know, once in a while something falls through the cracks, but that's very, very unusual. I mean, we have a full-time triage person sitting right on that phone, looking at that screen, answering questions all the time. And that's the way it should be. Because people get really worried and concerned about their health. Mm -hmm. Like as if, uh-huh. especially like gynecological health, like if something comes back, like abnormal or irregular, I've had an irregular pap smear before and I wanted answers like immediately, like tell me what's wrong with me. So I yeah. think that that's great. So yeah. for example, a pap smear, what would you, how much time of, how much of your time would be spent on that? What would you bill that out to the insurance ad? And what would you typically collect back just to understand like the financial component of what that means in today's world? Oh man, not much. I mean, you know, maybe a hundred dollars, maybe a hundred dollars. And that's not a lot when it, because it's not just my time, it's everybody else's time and scheduling the patient and the MA working the patient up. So yeah, like a hundred, like if say a Medicare patient comes in, Medicare patients are allowed to see the gynecologist. It gets paid for every other year. And if they want to come in in that intervening year, they pay a hundred dollars. Well, some of these Medicare patients have lists of medications a mile long and lists of surgeries. And it, you know, it takes a long time to get a hold of, of their general medical condition. So, um, so it, unless you have a cash inflow, now the aesthetics, you know, we do Elmsculpt Neo, we do microneedling, radio frequency microneedling of the face. Um, we do peels, uh, we do hair removal, we do tube removal, we do brown spot removal. I mean, we do a whole list of, of aesthetic offerings, but we also have what we call the intimates. We have uh, radio frequency microneedling of the vagina, which, which tightens the vagina after oftentimes women have a number of kids and they end up kind of loose. Uh, we have high intensity focus electromagnetic energy. We have two different technologies that strengthen the muscles in the base of the pelvis. None of that is covered by insurance and pellets are not covered by insurance. No so insurance company covers them. So this is all cash influx, which allows us to do what we do. What's the fastest growing procedure out of the ones you just listed or the most popular? Uh, well, for the face, it's radio frequency microneedling. It's more. I just had that done in our house. Oh, not not the radio frequency, but microneedling. And Chad yeah. was looking at me like I was a crazy person. I never know what she's. <laughs> but I had, I had heard on a different podcast of vaginal rejuvenation stuff is is huge. Huge. It's absolutely huge. But that's also radio frequency microneedling or laser. Mm. And then, uh, and then high intensity focus electromagnetic energy, which is the Amcella chair, where you just sit on a chair and it strengthens the muscles. Or there's a device that goes in the vagina called uh, V-tone. These are uh, those last in mode makes um, a platform that offers the radio frequency and the high intensity focus electromagnetic energy. So yes, it's it's a it's an up and coming, uh, very very popular technique mm-hmm. and technology. Mm-hmm. So do you see more pa- of your patients coming in for their face or for their vagina? <laughs> well, they don't really come to me for their face. I mean, they'll mention it to me and I send them up to my estheticians. Right. I have two fabulous estheticians. So they come to me more for their vagina. But yeah. like, which procedure would you say is more popular in your office? Or is there, is it, is it like pretty 50, 50? Um, probably more women are having their face done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, 
it's the radio frequency microneedling of the face is I've had it done a few times and yeah. it really has made a difference in my skin. Is there a downtime associated with the radio frequency part? You know, it depends on the person. For me, I'm very reactive and very allergic. And so it wasn't yeah. a downtime, but I certainly looked a little bizarre for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but then, then that sells more radio frequency microneedling because they know their doctor's doing it. You know, yeah, I was right. swollen. I was definitely puffy for a few days and had, you know, red marks on my neck. Okay. But it goes away. As we approach the end of the episode here, I just had a question around, like, is there anything you've read, a uh, piece of research or a journal uh, as of late that significantly uh, changed your, your practice or, or not your belief strategy, but just your field in general, if any? Well, the um, yes, the there have been a number of articles. For a long time, if a patient had breast cancer, we were not allowed to use any estrogen at all. They were just relegated to you know, vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse, and there's just really not much we could do. Mm. So over the last year and a half or so, the American College of OBGYN has has looked at studies and decided that these women can use vaginal estrogen, which has been a huge opening, a real relief to so many women. So yes, there have been two or three articles that um, that have fortunately changed the way I practice menopausal medicine and given these women an option that they didn't have before. I think that this episode is going to be so helpful for women who have gone through menopause. Like I said, there's, so, I, I would say probably like maybe 40 to 50% of my clients and a lot of the people who follow me on Instagram are, are in that stage of life. And I think it, this is going to be really helpful for them. Um, so to kind of wrap things up, you are like, as we've noted, a very busy woman. You see a ton of patients a day. You are also traveling back and forth, um, state to state, you know, for personal things. Can you tell us a little bit about how you keep yourself feeling healthy and keep yourself feeling mentally clear and energized? Um, cause what you're doing I, you know, I'm not saying that you're old, but like at your age is very impressive. <laughs> I'm 70. That pretty much qualifies as old. I, mean, I think it even technically qualifies as elderly. Um, well, I do yoga every night. I mean, that's just the rule. Every night I do, I uh, get yoga online with, do yoga with me and, and uh, I do yoga for at least half an hour every single night. And that's very important. And um, is it more for your body or more for your mind or both? Both. It's really both. Yeah. And you know, how do you stay so disciplined with something like that? Because there are so many people out there who will say, well, well, I'm just going to skip it tonight. I'm going to pour myself a glass of wine and relax. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, if you do something long enough, it really does become a habit. And, yeah. and if I skip it, if I skip it, I just, don't feel good the next day. Yeah. So yeah. that's, it has become an absolute habit. Yeah. You know, sometimes I'm really tired. The nice thing about yoga online is that you can choose the intensity of your, of your practice and you yeah. can choose the length of time the session goes on. Right. So that's pretty much, you know, sometimes I meditate, you know, Lloyd would like to see me meditate a lot long, a lot more than I do, but yeah. um, meditation is, 
it, it, it is helpful. It's just sometimes in the morning, I just want to sleep a little more. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Lloyd is her boyfriend and he is a meditation expert. And so that would actually be a, he would be a great person to have on the podcast. Yeah. He throws down like 24 hour cycles. So. <laughs> um, so yoga, yes. and then tell us a little bit about your diet because, you know, over the years I tried a million and one different things and being plant-based is what works for me. And it is very, very, you know, inspired by you and your daughters. Um, you guys have lived that way for a long time. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I was raised as a vegetarian. My, um, when I was growing up, we lived next door to my grandparents, my father's parents and my grandfather, um, was a vegetarian. He was a follower of George Bernard Shaw, who was uh, a very famous vegetarian. You know, animals are my friends and I don't eat my friends. Yeah. That was his quote, uh, among many other wonderful quotes. So he was vegetarian. Um, and and I was the oldest and my parents kept having kids. And so I spent a lot of time at their house and I was highly influenced by his ethical vegetarianism so i've never really had uh much in the way of meat uh in my whole life but then i did um so i was a vegetarian for a long time for a little while i ate fish but i would which i would never do now uh you know we're just decimating the oceans and i i it breaks my heart honestly um but i did a a weekend pita session um Oh, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago and, and, you know, saw what um, the dairy industry did to cattle and, and, and how inextricably tied to the veal industry it is. So I became vegan. So I haven't had dairy or eggs or any of that stuff for probably, you know, 20 years at this point. So it's, and I feel good. Uh, I am healthy. My you know, my blood work is wonderful. My cholesterol is like 165. Yeah. Um, so I, and I think for the, for the planet, it's the best way to go. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and for bodies, I think it's the best way to go. You know, we're not, I mean, the way we evolved, I mean, once in a while, you know, people thousands of years ago would make a kill and they'd eat meat, but it wasn't a daily, it wasn't a daily thing at all. Yeah. So, and we don't have teeth. I mean, we don't have big old fangs to tear apart meat. You know, yeah. if we were meant to eat meat, we'd have bigger fangs. So, no, I think it's important. Um, I think it's very important. Yeah. And I, I feel, I feel good at 70. Hey, I just, Lloyd and I just did a six mile hike up in the mountains of uh, Colorado on Saturday. I was pretty proud of myself. Incredible. <laughs> um, <laughs> So one last question for you, because I know you're, you're big on this. Like we just talked about, um, I think there's a really big misconception out there that if you're plant-based, you don't get protein. So no. can you explain to our listeners, what are the best sources of plant-based protein and how do you make sure you're getting enough protein every day? And what is enough? You know, probably 20 grams of protein a day is enough. And we, eat, as a as an American society, we eat, we eat way, way too much protein. And the only thing that comes with 
a whole lot of protein is cancer and heart disease. So we don't need we don't need anywhere near the amount of protein that we take in. That's so crazy. Um, I, I had someone telling me the other day that she gets 150 grams of protein a day. That's insane. Yeah. yeah, that's insane. Now, you know, she just if she's just getting it from protein drinks and things like this, that's one thing. But if you're getting it from steaks and chicken and, you know, and ribs and whatever else you're eating, then that's going to come with some real potential problems uh, in your body. But as far as the best sources of protein, you know, beans, garbanzo beans, lentils, uh, things like that, but almost anything uh particularly in the bean family, soybeans, they have plenty of protein in them, plenty yeah. of protein. Quinoa has a, a tremendous amount of protein. And all nine em- essential amino acids. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, there's no problem getting enough protein in a vegan diet. And frankly, I don't even worry about it. I don't think about it. I mean, and like for someone like you guys, I mean, you know, it's, it's audio on the podcast, but if you see the video real of the podcast that we put up this week of Debbie with like her hair is like the most gorgeous hair I've ever seen. And you can't have gorgeous hair unless you have a healthy inside and enough protein. So clearly she's doing something right. That's where I get well, my grays. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's hereditary. <laughs> Better than the other one. Better than yeah, losing exactly. it. <laughs> Well, thank you. I think this was was great. This was honestly one of my favorite episodes that we've done. Thank you, Debbie. Okay. Well, you're very welcome to both of you. you. I love you both. (laughs) Love you too. Thanks for being on the show, mom. Okay. You're welcome. Bye-bye. We really hope that you enjoyed that episode. You can follow me on Instagram at Wellness by Kelly. And if you're new around here, you can sign up for the WBK seven day free trial where you can get access to all of my low impact workouts, blood sugar balancing, plant-based recipes, and guided meditations all available on wellnessbykelly.com and on the WBK app. Hey, thanks for listening. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also connect with us on social media at Wellness by Kelly. Drop us a DM for who you want to hear from.